One of the curious uh, contradictions of Australia's uh, involvement in the war in, Af- in Afghanistan is that poll after poll after poll has consistently shown that the majority of Australians are opposed to Australian military engagement uh, in that country. Uh, in November 2011, Essential Research carried out a poll which found 64% of respondents were in favour of Australian uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. That was up from 47% in October 2010. And a poll conducted actually just today by the Age newspaper uh, of nearly 2,000 respondents, 75% when asked the question, uh, is it time for Australia to withdraw from Afghanistan uh, said yes. Uh, But the contradiction is that that majority public uh, opinion against the war has, of course, not translated into even the slightest uh, embryo or the slightest uh, uh, inkling of an anti-war movement uh, in this country, which I think is is of a piece uh, with a much wider uh, perplexing uh, social question, which is uh, the, the ongoing passivity uh, of the, the vast, vast bulk uh, of, of the population and all, all kinds of theories relating to that. Are we too sated? Are we too uh, materially privileged? Are we distracted uh, by a thousand things and so forth? I won't go into all that conversation, but nevertheless, it's, um, it's a question worth uh, posing to yourself as to... Um, why, given uh, Australian troops are dying there, uh, needlessly, most people think uh, we're not actually doing anything about it at all. But uh, I had the opportunity a little earlier today uh, to discuss uh, in, some, in some more depth about uh, the realities of uh, the war in Afghanistan uh, and some of the, the context around some of the context around those uh, race, recent Australian troop deaths uh, with long-term anti-war activists recently uh, moved up from Melbourne but was involved uh, for quite some time with the Sydney Stop uh, the War Coalition. Uh, this is uh, Tony Iltis. Tony Iltis, over the weekend, Afghan President Hamid Karzai issued a statement in which he, and I quote, strongly condemns the unilateral military operation conducted by the Australian troops that killed a 70-year-old man, Haji Raz Muhammad, and his 30-year-old son, Abdul Jalil, in the province of Uruzgan, end quote. Uh, This operation in which uh, reportedly nine people were arrested was uh, uh, in connection with uh, the hunt for uh, the so-called Green on Blue attacker uh, who killed three Australian soldiers at the uh, Uruzgan base uh, last week. Uh, this, this, this raid that took place, which two people were killed and, and nine people uh, arrested that were later uh, released by Afghan forces, I mean, how typical is that, do you think, of, of Australian uh, military operations in Afghanistan? Unfortunately, it's very typical. I mean, when I talk about Australian military operations, they're part of an international force, and you know the way the international, if American-led, but the way the different parties act in it is very much the same. And actually, most Afghans don't draw a distinction between Americans and other countries. You know, but they'll refer to the Americans, even if it might be Germans or Australians in a particular incident. But I mean, one of the things which I've found sort of typical but also quite shocking in a way is how the media here hasn't questioned the government's description of the two people shot dead as insurgents. I mean, one of the guys, like you said, was 70 years old. I mean, a 70-year-old insurgent kind of stretches credibility a bit. But, I mean, one of the most hated things about the occupation in Afghanistan is night raids, which is where occupation troops go into a house and basically shoot first and ask questions later. And a lot of people died this way, but it's often very difficult to know because 
they're covered up. And yes, yeah, so, sorry to interrupt there, Tony, but uh, that was something that uh, Hamid Karzai, which is surprising to come from uh, Hamid Karzai, given he's really seen by many people as a puppet president, uh, said that the operation did breach the memorandum of understanding uh, signed between Afghanistan and NATO. Actually, uh, that that banned night operations or at least night operations that didn't involve uh, at, at prior approval from Afghan forces. So um, even breaching uh, a commitment given to the, the puppet government there. Yeah, which shows something as well about Hamad Karzai, who I suppose is in a fairly untenable position, because, I mean, on the one hand, to try and, you know, regain some measure of popular credibility, he's got to say something about these killings. On the other hand, I mean, I don't think Afghans will ever see him ever ever as anything other than a puppet of the occupation forces, which means that as soon as the occupation forces are... Let leave. He'd have a very low, you know. I mean, he won't last very long, um, either as president or probably alive. And I mean, that's not saying the Taliban will get him. I mean, I very much doubt the Taliban would get him because there'd be people much closer to him would want to get him first. So, I mean, like with this question of whether the, I mean the Australians now saying that there were Afghan troops in this raid which killed these two people alongside the Australians. And I mean, that's possibly true because Karzai is going to want to distance himself from the occupation when these things happen. But I mean, at the same time, Karzai is very much part of the occupation and he would have never, I mean, he returned to Afghanistan with the occupying armies to be installed as president. So, I, yeah, I mean, I, at this point, I wouldn't really know which one's telling the truth about whether there are Afghan troops in this Australian-led attack or not. We are speaking to Melbourne-based anti-war activist Tony Iltis and you're listening to the Indie Media Show on RTRFM 92.1. Indie Media. A lot of the uh, media commentary, even by so-called experts on the war, uh, in relation to this uh, so-called green on blue attack has pointed out that there perhaps there was a, an insult to the cultural customs of the Afghanis or that there was a personal grievance uh, involved in a lot of these uh, sorts of incidents. I mean, it, apart from striking me as uh, incredibly racist to suggest that uh, uh, if you eat your food the wrong way, an Afghan gentleman will, will murder you uh, in your sleep sort of thing. Uh, I mean, what does that say about the paucity of understanding in, in the Australian media uh, that, that the analysis has been so, uh, well, pathetic really and there's been virtually no mention at all that perhaps, you know, there's just a, perhaps a slight possibility that people are aggrieved at the occupation of their country by foreign forces, that that's what's motivating them to, to turn on these uh, occupation soldiers. Well, exactly. I mean, as you say, it is racist. I mean, they tried the Taliban infiltrator line, but that just sort of lacks credibility and undermines their own propaganda because if they're creating this Afghan force or whatever, you know, it's supposed to be fighting for Taliban, not infiltrated. But then, yes, saying it as some kind of cultural thing. I mean, it just underlines the whole... You know, it's like a real return to sort of the 19th century imperial racism where... You know, it's not questioned that our soldiers are over there doing a good thing. And, I mean, they're always spoken about as if they're teachers or social workers or something. But, I mean, when you see them going off to Afghanistan, they're not carrying school books. They're carrying guns and rocket launchers and things like that. And, but it's sort of unquestioned that they're there doing a good thing. And then this, yeah, this sort of amazement at what could have possibly motivated an Afghan to want to shoot one of the... Australian soldiers, and I mean, when you consider 
you know, of thousands of people who have died, or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and if you include actually deaths by disease and hunger and things caused by the disruptions created by the war, you're probably talking about a body count in millions, although no one's actually counting. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it's actually, yeah, very obvious why soldiers belonging to the occupation army aren't exactly popular. And, I mean, I think in a general rule, if you go to someone's country uninvited and start killing, shooting, locking people up and torturing them, I mean, there's background air bases probably worse than Guantanamo in terms of the torture going on there if, and supporting various warlords against other various warlords and all the rest of it. I mean... Speaking of warlords, and sorry to sorry to interrupt you again, uh, Tony, but uh, provincial police chief of Uruzgan, Matula Khan, uh, has been uh, trained, and or his men have been trained in Australia. He's uh, given logistical and financial uh, support by Australian forces, and uh, is reputed to have uh, a very sordid history of heroin trafficking, and was involved, according to a report uh, authored by yourself uh, in Greenleaf Weekly a couple of years ago. His forces were reported to be involved in a massacre of some 80 people in Shawali Kot district in Kandahar, uh, a province of very shady character indeed, Matula Khan, who is uh, aided and abetted, supported by uh, Australian forces in Uruzgan. Could you tell us a bit more about uh, this character, Matula Khan? Um, what is quite, actually quite typical of the people who are now forming what's called the Afghan local police, which is basically getting, you know, the local thugs, you know, the local, you know, sort of warlords and things and sort of giving them new uniforms and trying to incorporate them into the occupation forces. And, I mean, one way or another, that's been the strategy all along, which, I mean, has horrific... I mean, these massacres I spoke about are just the ones which are kind of on the record. I mean, his reputation is pretty horrendous. And also, not just for being incredibly violent, but just for being totally mercenary and criminal as well, which I guess is also then the problem that creates for the occupiers when the people you're you're relying on are sort of you know you're sort of criminal gangster types who you know can only see things in terms of very immediate short-term interests. They're not really reliable allies, so you know they're quite happy to kill for the occupation forces if the occupation forces are the biggest gang in town, which is sort of the situation in Afghanistan now. But I don't know if it serves their interests, they'd be just as happy to, you know, be killing occupiers. So they're not really a reliable ally, but they're also, you know, for the people of Afghanistan, these, um, you know, groups are an absolute disaster. And I guess they're also, a lot of them are based on families and in the provinces where there are different, you know, ethnic differences and all that, they're also, you know, based on those kind of conflicts as well. So, I mean, a lot of these militias who are on the occupier side are also, you know, they don't necessarily get on well with each other. So, I mean, it's both from a human rights point of view, they're absolutely, you know, it's absolutely, you know, again, it shows a sort of total hypocrisy of the media reporting here when, like you say, they get trained in Australia and that's just considered fine. But, I mean, it also indicates one of the problems that the occupiers have, which is that they're, you know, uh, basically criminals and gangsters don't make a very reliable ally. That was Melbourne-based anti-war activist Tony Iltis.